title of today's sermon is But God. But God. I heard a preacher say one time of this very passage, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, that if you have not fallen on your knees in adoration and worship to God, if you have not flooded the floor beneath you with tears, you do not know this passage well enough. I think there may be some truth to that. So Ephesians chapter 2, we're only going to cover the first five verses because there is so much packed in this passage. But I'm going to go ahead and read all ten verses, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this word, and God, I ask in your grace that you would move in power this morning, Lord, that you would pierce hearts, God, that your grace would be sufficient for anyone in this room who is struggling through something, and God, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know the glory and the goodness of Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen. I was actually talking to Jay in the kitchen earlier, and we were just talking about well, my wife not being here, and, you know, he made that clear how unfortunate that is. Uh, just kidding, but, but he did. And we're talking about that, and then I just said, man, it's just crazy that uh, I'm preaching here. And he said, well, how is it crazy? And I just said, and in that very moment, I just thought, well, it's not crazy. That's not the right word. It's just the grace of God that I'm here. You know, Selah, as many of you know, Grew up uh, part of her life in this church. She worked here. Her parents, they're still members here. Um, but Selah came to Christ when she was very young, very young. There's a video of her at four years old on a stage in front of a group of people talking about the Good Samaritan. Like, that is rare. And I came to Christ not that long ago. Our, our stories, our testimonies, how, how God saved us, very different. And if you would have put that on paper, it would never have lined up. And it's just a testimony of the goodness and grace of God. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about how real God is and how powerful God is. I was just recently skiing uh, up in Colorado a few months ago. And as we, you're on the chairlift going up to the top of the mountain, and believe me, it's high. I just thank God and his grace that I am a person who can look at those mountains and know that the glory of God and the beauty of Christ exists in those mountains. 
And the higher I got, the more beautiful the uh, view was, the mountains were. And as I would turn around and look, just this vastness, open look of the beauty of the glory of God. And on this chair with me are people walking worldly. And I just wish that they could know this God. And God is real, church. And he is powerful. And this may seem very simple and very basic to you and me. But how much do we actually believe this? Just singing those songs, the communion talk. My gosh, that was powerful. How much do we believe that God is real, that his power is made evident in our lives? God has shown us his power in the cosmos, in the creation of the world he has shown us. His power and His reality. Paul writes in Romans 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, his, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. The glory, the majesty, the reality of God is all around us. It's all around us. In Genesis, the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. That the earth was out form and void. That it was complete darkness. And then God spoke and the world came to be. If you want to see the reality, if you want to see the power of God, just look around you. Look at the mountains of the earth, the rivers, the valleys, all the beauty and the wonders. Look at the birds of the air and the creatures of the sea. How about the, the Himalayas alone, the Grand Canyon? I mean, the wonders of God. How can you not look at these things and not know that there is a creator? Paul actually has more to say about this creator God. He says of Christ, our creator, in Colossians, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and by him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Let me ask you something. What do you know about the universe? Now I'm sure in a room this size, some of you may have a little more knowledge about the universe than the person sitting next to you. Some of you are much older than me. Maybe you've studied the universe or simply Googled it. But when it comes to the grander and just the wonder of the universe, I think all of us are really quite clueless. I didn't do a whole study on the universe, just FYI. But I did do a Google search. And on this quick Google search, it says that between the Earth and the edge of the observable universe is about 46 billion light years away. That the diameter of the observable universe, 93 billion light years away or away or look if any of this is not accurate you can see me after this message but I think you get the picture the universe is so unfathomable to us so vast and wide in fact it says that there are millions of different galaxies within this universe billions of different stars and our God placed them all precisely where they ought to be look what 
the writer of Hebrews says of this creator. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Another version says it like this, in whom he, Jesus, created the universe. So this God, the one true God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is the creator and sustainer of all things, including the universe. So God has made himself real. He has demonstrated his power in the creation of the cosmos and of this very earth. But church, that's not all. Because this same God who has made himself known, has made his power evident in the creation of the cosmos, has made his power known in the life of a Christian. God's miraculous power is, is not just amazingly seen throughout creation. It's shown in the new creation of the saints who have been created new in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, a new has come. This is who our God is. You know, it's one thing for God to speak light into an empty darkness and create a world out of nothing. That's power. But it's another thing for God to speak life into an evil, dead spirit and create a Christian out of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now that's power on an entirely different level. And that's where we find ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes for us who we were before our encounter with God. How utterly hopeless we were. The fate of our eternity, he tells us. How we were apart from God. And he explains that this infinitely great power has now become personal in the life of every believer. In fact, Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know and understand what the hope for which he has called us in. And he ends chapter 1 by saying, all power and authority belongs to Christ, not just in this present age, but for all of eternity. And I just want to add in chapter 1, Paul gives us a picture of how this great power is made evident and personal in our lives. It's illustrated for us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, church, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most glorious display of the power of God in the entire universe. And that same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead has spiritually resurrected you and me from the dead. And this is where we find ourselves. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That word trespass means to arrogantly step across the line of God's holy and righteous standards. It means that we have morally violated the biblical commands of the creator God. It's not that we don't have a moral compass. In our society, in our culture today, based on state and national laws, we have some form of a moral compass. We, we know right from wrong. Think about it like this. 
How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands because it's obvious, all of you, have seen a no trespassing sign at some point or another in your life? Especially in Texas. No trespassing. We know what that means. Stay away. Don't cross this line. Because if you do, maybe in Texas, you might get shot. They might have a sign next to that sign saying, or we'll shoot, or we don't call 911. We know what that means. Don't cross it. Don't enter into that space. Trespassing, stepping over the line, is following, falling short of God's laws. But Paul says, and sins. To sin, of course, is to fall short of something, to miss the target. Why do we do that? Why do we fall short? Why do we trespass? Why do we sin if we know we shouldn't? Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what's the cause of the trespasses? What's the cause of the sins? Well, Paul tells us we were dead. This was the condition that we were in before Christ. It's not that we were drowning and someone threw us a Jesus life jacket. It's not that we were sick and there was some sort of medication that could help us. No, Paul says, we were dead. Imagine it like this. A doctor walks into a graveyard, and he walks up and down all of the rows and by all of the tombstones, and on each tombstone he puts a basket of medicine. As if that medicine will help the dead person who's lying six feet underneath. Church, dead people don't need medicine. They need resurrection. So what does Paul mean by by dead? Did he mean physically dead? I mean, look, I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I know that dead people don't walk. They just don't. They get buried or they get burned to ashes. Look what he tells us. He says, when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, you you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. So clearly they're not physically dead. Think about it like this. Adam and Eve, what do we know about Adam and Eve? Well, they had a perfect relationship with God in the garden. They had it all good. They were naked and living the good life until that great deceiver came and he changed the whole trajectory of the human race. God gave Adam and Eve one command. Don't eat of that one tree, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is what the Lord God said to them. For in that day, if you eat, you shall surely die. Well, spoiler alert, they ate that fruit. But Adam didn't die either because it tells us that he lived 930 years. So what is this dead referring to? In fact, another version um, that I read actually says that Adam was driven out of the garden. Can you imagine the relationship that you have with God in this moment, ever being driven out of that relationship because you sinned, because you stepped over the line because you trespassed, and all of a sudden God has driven you out of his presence. Adam and Eve were cut off by the tree of life. They were cut off by God's presence, by God's goodness. They were cut off by close relationship with God. Paul says we were dead. And so if we were dead and we were walking, what were we doing? We were following the course of this world, Paul says. Look what happened through Adam's sin. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
Church, this is a, a world that we have been born into, brought up in, cursed, affected by sin, apart from God. You and I were participating in the things of this world, gravitating towards the things of this world. Why? Because we were dead, Paul says, in our trespasses and sins. Think about it like this, a dead fish. What do do dead fish do? They lie flat on the surface, and they go with the current of the water. Wherever that current goes, that's where that dead fish is going. That's what you and I were, dead, following the current and the course of this world. But what does he mean by world? Does he mean the earth? Does he mean the oceans and the stars and the universe? I mean, what does he mean by the world? Look what 1 John says, chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So the ideologies, the culture, the spirit of this age, this is the world. The lusts of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life. We are helplessly violated, conformed and attached to the things of this world because we were dead, church. You know, this, this made me think of uh, how sin is, is, is okay, how, how it seems fun because it's normal. It made me think of a TV show that I watched, was a huge fan of called Friends. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. started in 1994, ran for 10 years, one of the most successful TV series ever. Incredible. Incredibly successful. I was attached to it. I loved it. And I took my wife through the entire series last year. She hadn't really watched it. We watched it. I just took, brought back all these memories. But I want to tell you, looking at that show from a new perspective, a godly perspective, you see all of the sin that is celebrated in that show. Because this is the way the world looks at relationships. And I can't tell you how many times throughout all ten seasons how they celebrated pornography all throughout. Because that is the social norm in our world. That show teaches things that, again, worldly things. And it can suck us in and pull us in to the current and the course of this world. That's what TV does. But let's take it a step further, a little deeper. Not only were we following the course of this world, but we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work, at work in the sons of disobedience. It's important to highlight or, or to notice that the word following, at least in the ESV, is used twice. We were following not only the course of the world, but the prince of the power of the air. They go hand in hand. So who is this prince? Underneath the following of the course of this world, there's a supernatural, invisible, dark spirit behind all of your rebellion and sin and worldly living. This is, of course, the devil, the enemy, Satan, the evil one. First John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Don't just look at the evil around you, and the wars and the terrorism, the abortions, the sexual immorality, the pornography, the divorce, the same-sex marriage, all of this corrupted by the prince of the power of the air. But look at your own heart, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That word work in the Greek means energeo, 
That's where we get the word energy. So apart from Christ, church, the devil is giving you twisted, dark energy to love the world. I think about my own life. I'm 32. They come as a shock to many of you. Somebody earlier called me a kid. But God still loves you. Uh, But seriously, I think about my own life, how I walked this earth for 28 years, convinced that I did not need God as if it were my own fault. I was blinded. I couldn't see the beauty and the wonders and the power of Christ. I couldn't. I was trapped in my sin and my rebellion against God. And it's not that it's your addictions, the pornography, the divorce, the anger, the hatred, the shortcomings, or the reason that you disobeyed God. But there was a power greater than yourself that kept you and I blinded, shackled as a slave to sin because of the power of the prince of the air, the devil, corrupted your mind, kept you in a state of constant disobedience towards God. This is the state of the entire human race. Those who are apart from God are living as the walking dead, indulging in the things of this world, controlled by the power of Satan, disobeying the living God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world, little g God, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That verse alone, church, should encourage all of us, myself included, to pray often for those who are blinded by the truth. They don't care that you've invited them to the church. They don't care to come and participate in serving in the church. They don't care to hear you talk about Jesus because they are blinded and they cannot see the truth of God's word. And you're not good enough to convince them. You need the power of God that is within you in your constant and steadfast prayers. So we were sons of disobedience, meaning the devil supplied us with an endless supply of this inner geo, this this energy to willfully and deliberately and absolutely disobey God, refusing to believe the gospel. And let me tell you, this is scary, church. 2 Thessalonians 1 says this, that God will eternally destroy those who are disobedient to the gospel. And so we live and we think that we're living a normal life, blinded by the beauty of the gospel, the truth and the power of God's word. Utterly hopeless. Spiritual zombies coaxed into thinking that we're not doing anything offensive towards God because we're blinded of the reality of who he is. And so, here we once were, following the course of this world, following the devil, the prince of the air, the sons of disobedience. But then Paul says in verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Another version says that we were born with a sinful nature. As humans, we crave sin. Not looking at the world with a pure perspective, but one of a corrupted and wicked and deceived mind filled with thoughts of sin. This is who we once were, Paul says, by our own very human nature, sinners. Out of the womb, taught to rebel against God. This is what the world teaches us. I like what the, it's very difficult to hear, but what the prophet Isaiah says. When we are placed up in comparison with a perfect, holy, righteous, pure, undefiled God, we are filthy rags, pursuing the desires of the flesh, having this sinful nature, 
What does this sinful nature mean? What, what, what is that? Paul says in Galatians 5, kind of gives a summation of what it is. Now the works of the flesh, the sinful nature, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The list is so long, he didn't have enough space, I guess, to put it all. So he summarized it by saying, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, Paul says, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is the truth of God's word. And if it couldn't get any worse, the scariest part of all of this, Paul says, we were children of wrath. Paul says that when you and I were born, we were subjects, not only of the prince of the air, the devil, but subjects of God's holy wrath, pursuing the idols and the lusts and the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, disobeying God's word, impure subjects of the enemy. And as unbelievers, as Revelation 20 says, unbelievers are headed to an endless lake of fire. The Bible is filled with amazing truth, beautiful, powerful, life-changing and transforming truth. But the Bible is filled with some very difficult truths to swallow. And at the very least, the very least, if you feel like you aren't called to serve in this church or you feel like there's nothing else that you can do or there's too many spots filled, you should be on your knees. Develop a prayer team in this church. Maybe there already is one where you come together and you pray for the unbelievers of this world, people that you will never encounter and never meet because those people, if not by the grace and mercy of God, are headed to a hell of endless fire. And it should have us on our knees desperate for God's mercy for those people because this is the scariest reality in the universe. And then verse 4 happened. And these might be the two most powerful words ever spoken. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ together. By grace you have been saved. Christian, you were a walking dead corpse with an eternal destination called hell. Trapped and ensnared with the powers of a deceiving devil. But God, no understanding of the depth of God's love for you, you couldn't comprehend how Christ died for you. The cross wasn't beautiful to you. Calvary meant nothing to you. Endless, abundant grace was inconceivable to you. But God, in the beginning of creation, there was this formless and dark emptiness. But God showed up and spoke light and universe and earth and living things and man. And then Satan and sin entered into the world and the whole world came under his ruling and reign. But God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth on a rescue mission to seek and save those who were blinded. And when Jesus showed up, He opened blind eyes and deaf ears. He healed the leper. He forgave sins. He caused the lame to walk. He shared the good news of the coming of the kingdom. He told adulterers that He loved them, that His grace was sufficient for them, that they could be forgiven. He even raised the dead. Because when but God happens, things begin to change. A shift in the atmosphere occurs. Angels in heaven roar with excitement while demons tremble at the mighty works of God. And Christian, this passage is all of our testimonies. Now, don't get me wrong. We all have a, a unique 
aspect of our testimony and how God has reached down in the depths of our souls and saved us from ourselves. Yeah, we all have our own unique stories, but church, Ephesians 2 is everybody's story. Ephesians 2 is everybody's but God moment. When Jesus called us out of the grave and made us alive with Christ, that's our but God moment. When Jesus intervened, I love what it says in John 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days, lying in that tomb, wrapped in grave clothes. But the Bible tells us Jesus showed up on the scene and stood outside of that tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And a man who had been dead four days walked out of that tomb. Lazarus had a but God moment. And the same goes for you and me. Jesus called us out of the grave, out of our sin and ourselves. And instead of grave clothes coming off of us, it's the filthy rags and the stain of sin taken off as if it were never even there. And all of a sudden, you became a spotless, beloved child of God. All of a sudden. No longer subject to God's holy wrath, but filled with endless mercy and grace. And it says here that Paul writes that God is rich in mercy, that He has it in abundance, as Paul says in chapter 1, that He lavished on us. Christian, do you remember your but God moment? That day God called you out of the grave, out of a life of sin and death corrupted by the devil? I'll never forget when that moment happened to me. It was April 4th, 2015. I sat in a church and Jesus said to me, Nate, come forth. For God called me out of my sin and myself and He saved me. Not by anything I ever did. Simply just showed up. And I heard the Gospel because God removed the blinders. Because the power of God removes the blinders that are covering our faces that prevent us from seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Finally, I could see the beauty and the wonders that is found in Christ. And I began to hear the Word of God for the first time. Despite my sin and all of my shortcomings, all I could offer God were filthy rags, but Jesus pierced right through it all, through the sin, through the death that had once consumed me, and He spoke life into me, and He called me out of the grave. Christian, how well do you remember that moment? Your but God moment. When was that for you? When God lavished on you all spiritual wisdom and understanding that you would know and understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the better future that God had for you. That despite being spiritually dead and apart from God, His grace made us alive with Christ. We were saved, Paul says. Saved from the grip and the constant pull of the desires of this world. Saved from those moments behind the scenes where we watch porn and think it's okay because nobody is looking. Saved from the guilt of the next drink that takes us over the edge and causes us to be drunk. Saved from the needle or the next pull into a new drug. Saved from the patterns and the desires and the current and the course of this world. Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what we have been called into because we have been saved from this world. What does it mean to be saved, though? What is Paul talking about? That word means to be rescued. 
We have been rescued, church. But from what? From ourselves, from the leash and the grip that Satan has kept on us, keeping us blinded of the beauty of the living God who loves us with a great love, Paul says in this text, an everlasting love, an unending and eternal kind of love. That is a love that no one can give you on this earth. No one can love you the way God loves you. Paul says it's a great love, an everlasting love, an eternal kind of love. Jesus conquered sin and death, church. God raised him from the dead. And with that same power, raised us from our spiritual deadness. That those who believe are now sons and daughters of the Most High God. No longer objects of his wrath, but beloved children filled with the grace and mercy of God. This is who we are. For it is by grace, Paul says, we have been saved. It's not by your own merit or deeds or good works. Believe me, I bet you anyone in this room who's faithfully following Christ is doing good deeds, is doing good works. People handing out communion, you're doing good things. God has called you into this to serve your local church. How often do you hear Mike preach about going out and being missionaries in your local communities and sharing the gospel. These are good works. These are good deeds. It's not that you aren't doing those. You just could have never done that enough. You could never hand out enough communion trays to earn your spot in eternity with God. You could have never shown up to enough Wednesday night Bible studies to find your place where God might see what you're doing and think, man, he's doing so good. I think I want that one. Never enough. Never enough. Whoever gets here early and unlocks the doors, Never enough. Whoever cleans this place up, provides the free coffee, the free donuts for the first-time guests, make them feel welcome and special, never enough. Maybe one of you is using your own money to buy those donuts. I don't even know if there are donuts today, but there usually are. Never enough. You can't give enough money. You are not good enough, and you never were going to be good enough. There needed to be a sacrifice. You and I were not ever able to earn a seat at the table of Christ, there needed to be a sacrifice. To, one to go on our behalf. One who was blameless and clean and pure. One who knew no sin. Nobody here can make you right with God. There is no middle man with some kind of higher ranking in the church that can give you a blessing or supply you atonement for your sins to give you a way to God. Jesus is our middle man. He's our high priest. He's the only way to God. Jesus said of of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because there is no other name or heaven for which man can be saved, church. So Christian, are you living a saved life? One that reveals the power and the glory and the wonders and the mercy of God through your spiritual resurrection from the dead. God does not look at you and your sin. That's not what he sees. He doesn't look at you as a subject of his wrath. God looks at you and he sees the cross of Jesus Christ. He sees the magnificent work that happened on Mount Calvary. Paul tells us in chapter 1 that God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. Suing a life of purity and honesty, and dignity, and integrity, and patience, and kindness, and compassion, and faithfulness, and gentleness, to to live a life filled with the fruits of the Spirit, going in the opposite direction 
of this world, against the current. Christian, does your life stick out like a sore thumb? Because you're different. Because you're saved. The greatest news in the entire universe, the proof that God is real, that His power exists, is found in this verse. But God shows us His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just like those mountains in Colorado, the beauty and wonder of them, God is creating has created and is creating something beautiful and glorious in the lives of those who believe the gospel. I just want to invite you now in this room, if you don't know that your salvation is secured, Paul says again in the first chapter, it is sealed with the Holy Spirit. And if you're unsure of this, I want to know. I want to pray for you. And, and, and members of this church want to pray with you, and they want to help guide you in that right direction. Jesus is the only way to God full of grace and truth. And we are called to a life that sticks out, that is different, not of this world. Will you pray with me? Thank you for this word. Just the emotions that come from reading it. God, that outside of myself, I, have, I could have never done anything to know you. But in your grace and mercy, God, you found me in my sin and in myself. And you reached down in the depths. You called me out of the grave. And God, the same is true for every person in here who has put their faith in Christ and believed in the gospel. God, you have called them out of the grave. And so, God, I pray for us that you would help empower us to live a life not conformed to the patterns of this world, but, God, going against the current, living a life that is holy and blameless in your sight. Father, help us to do this. And, God, I pray for anyone in this room now who's never believed in the beauty and the wonder of the gospel of Christ, Lord God, would you open their heart and give them understanding that they may know and see the beauty and the power of your word and that nothing can ever take away their salvation for it is sealed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we thank you. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.